Over the years, I think I've gradually been drawn more and more into running the business and less and less on projects. And I think as we grew in time, the challenges became more real and more diverse and more within the business and not necessarily on projects. This time, the Business of Architecture and Design podcast is hosted by Isabel Tolland, director of Aileen Sage Architects, a practice she and Amelia Holiday established as their alter ego. Isabel is a highly sought-after speaker and thought leader and is a regular host of the Business of Architecture and Design podcast. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For this episode of the series, Isabel talks to Angela Ferguson, who is the CEO of FutureSpace and previously ran her own practice, Ferguson Design Studio. She is also an accomplished writer, speaker and design industry thought leader. And now, over to Isabel. Angela Ferguson is the CEO and Managing Director of one of Australia's leading interior design and architectural practices, FutureSpace, a practice renowned for creating innovative, futuristic and award-winning designs for some of Australia's leading companies, including Google, Microsoft, PwC, Johnson & Johnson and REA Group. Angela is also an experienced and informed presenter who speaks with passion and vision on the topics of human-centred design and what the future spaces we inhabit will look like. Welcome, Angela. It's great to have you here. One of the first statements on your website is the quote, I believe that people are the product of their environment. So perhaps could you tell us about the environment that produced you? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And what is your family like? Well, I was born in Adelaide. So my father was working there at the time. And I'm actually the oldest of four. I've got a sister and then two brothers. My sister and I were both born in Adelaide. And then we moved back to Melbourne. My family or my mum and dad were from Carlton and from Brunswick. So after a couple of years living in Adelaide, uh, we moved back and we actually built a house in country Victoria. So I remember that house being built because my mother was pregnant with my first brother and Uh, I think that was my first introduction really to sort of being around construction sites because we would go and visit this house being built. It was such a big deal for a young couple to build their own homes. I think it was a dream that they'd had for a long time. So it was very prevalent in our lives, I think, this this idea of building a house. And do your siblings work in kind of allied design industries? Nobody does. I'm the only one. So I've actually kind of wondered why, how did I end up in this career? And, you know, how did I end up in interiors? And I really do think it was a product of that growing up in this sort of country Victoria that was fast becoming suburban Victoria. It was the 70s and the 80s when I was growing up. So it was a pretty low tech world at the time. And I spent all of my time playing outside. And I don't think my mother ever thought there was a day that was too cold in Victoria to go and play outside. doesn't matter what time of the year it was. And because at the same time we were outside, we were riding our bikes, but we were also 
playing on construction sites all the time because all these new houses were being built. So I really remember running around on these sites, imagining, you know, what the rooms would be, figuring out, well, that's the bathroom because it's got the plumbing coming through. And so there was a lot of, I guess, exposure to to building. And do you think that's when you realised you wanted to be an interior designer or did that come later? I think that that came later. I didn't, I actually didn't even know that interior design existed. So I studied before the days of the internet. I'm feeling very ancient now. But when I was at uh, high school, I originally thought I wanted to do graphic design. And I went to Parantafe and I studied a diploma of art and design where you do everything. So you do graphics and you do sculpture and you do painting. And it was a pretty amazing time. I had Howard Arkley as a painting teacher, which was incredible. And I had Tony Clark as a history, art history teacher, which was, you know, that was pretty amazing sort of place to be. But yeah, I sort of evolved from wanting to do graphic design because I got frustrated with it being so two-dimensional. I really wanted to do something three-dimensional. And I was working in a bar during the days and I remember coming home and walking home in sort of midwinter in Melbourne thinking, you know, there must be something I can do that's about creating space. I didn't really know that interior design existed. I had to go to the newsagent and get that book about university courses and do my research that way. There wasn't the internet where you could Google things. So you studied um, interior design at RMNT and graduated in 1993 um, with the Bachelor of Interior Design. So how did you find your time at university and studying at RMIT? I loved studying at RMIT. It was an amazing course. I didn't get in the first time. They took, I think they had about 700 applicants and they took 35. So the first year that I went, the first year that I applied, I didn't get in. They said, you need to go away and do some technical drawing. So I did that. I did one or two subjects throughout the year to learn that tech drawing and round out my portfolio. And then the next year when I applied, they actually said to me, have you considered fine art? And I said, yeah, but I I need to earn a living. So I ended up getting in that second time around. RMIT was a fantastic place. You know, we had John Andrews as our head of uh, department and it was before Building 8 was built on Swanson Street. So we were in this old bra factory and we were able to like pull down walls and knock things down and paint things and change that space as we needed to for whatever exhibition or, or studio we had going at the time. So the first year was like that. The second year we were in this brand new building. So it kind of restricted us a little bit, but we found ways around it to make the space our own. Was there much integration with the architecture? Not really. We had a few studios that were integrated. So we had a lot of exposure to Leon Van Schaik and who's pretty impressive still. But yeah, there wasn't a lot of crossover, no. And when you finished university, where did you first work? I actually was surprised to get a job when I started because I didn't think I did that well at university. But I ended up working for a really small practice, Graham Nicholas. And there was only about six people in the business. There was a receptionist, the owner, who was a carpenter by trade. So he had a really hands-on background, a marketing person, a senior designer, a CAD person and me. And what was that experience like in that first job? That was actually a really amazing experience because I, right from day one, was exposed to projects from beginning to end. And they asked my opinion from day one, which threw me the first time. They asked me what I thought about something. I remember just thinking, how would I know? But they were amazing, actually. I got so much exposure and we had a lot of on-the-job training from a CAD point of view, from a site point of view. So it really was that all-round training from beginning to end. 
Were there particular people that you saw as your mentors in those early years or, you know, progressively as you've your business and your professional career has developed? Yeah, I've had a lot of people at various times in my life who've been really helpful. I think at Graham Nicholas, the senior designer there, Janet, she was amazing. But other times there've been various people who've been inspiring in, in the way. One guy in particular, I remember, he can hand draw the scale. That was so impressive. And so I was always trying to emulate what he did and there was that opportunity to sort of have that real apprentice attitude. And then where else did you work before you started your own practice? So that job finished up and I I wanted to move to Sydney because I was in Melbourne and I just there's just something about the blue skies here that really attracted me and like I still love Melbourne but Sydney's got a completely different energy and I'd applied to a bunch of jobs in Melbourne actually and then decided I was going to move to Sydney and Peter Gray from Gray Parksand called me and said you know come in for an interview and I said oh look I've decided I'm moving to Sydney and he said oh come in anyway you know and I met him and he offered me a role and he said look we actually need someone in our Sydney office. And so I came up here with a job actually, which I hadn't planned to do. And everyone here in the Sydney office, there was about 30 of them at the time. Some of them are still there today, but everyone in the Sydney office or most of them were a transplant from Melbourne. So we all hit it off because we all had the same sort of Mexican kind of value or south of the border sort of values. And it was a really great place to work. I've got friends from that time that I still have today because it was such a vibe of being sort of comrades in arms and and really kind of all working towards this common goal. And then you started your own practice after a certain period of time there? I did. I went and worked at Guy for a little while and I've only just realised recently because part of what I've been doing lately is just looking at my career and my career path. And I actually worked for other people for five years before I started my own practice, which I think is not a very long time. I had a really amazing stint at Gaia and I had a really short stint at BVN. And then I worked at Marquesian Partners for a year running their interiors team. And that was a great experience because I was running the interiors team almost as, it, as its own P&L. So it meant that I had the experience of running a business, but not necessarily the, you know, it was a bit of a training ground for then running my own business. So what made you want to start your own business? I, I think being the eldest of four, I've always kind of been in charge. And I just wanted to do things my way. And someone said to me after I had started my own business, he said, oh, Angela, I knew you'd always, you'd always talked about doing that. And I kind of, in my head, I went, really? I don't remember saying that, but maybe I did. I don't know. But so it just, it feels like it was always meant to be. So talk us through that experience of setting up your own business. Was it what you expected it to be like when you started? Look, I think I probably had no expectations, which is a good thing. If I had have known then what I know now, I may not have done it. I probably wouldn't have done it because it's not easy. But I really just thought at the time, you know, I was early 30s and I just thought, look, the worst that can happen is I have to go and get a job. And I knew that I was very employable and I just thought I'll give it a shot and if it doesn't work... I'll just go get a job. So you started off your own practice by yourself or with a team? Yeah, I started by myself. I had a project that was on the horizon and it was the museum for Qantas at at the domestic terminal up here. So I had worked for Qantas for a few years on different projects and I'd built up a really good relationship with that client and he wanted me to do the museum for them. And, you know, thinking back on that now, that was it. He was taking a pretty big risk, I think, with a startup effectively. But I was able to set up my business as I was a subtenant of Future Space at the time, which is my husband 
husband's business and he had three other business partners at the time. So it was almost like co-working before it really started. So I rented a desk. I paid a monthly license. They gave me a, a drive on the server so I could change all my stuff. And my attitude was from day one, I'm going to act as if I'm 100 people. I'm one person, but I'll set this up looking to the future as if I were 100 people because I am a bit of an organized person. I like things to be organized. And yeah, it's just sort of, it grew over time. It got to about seven people in the end, but it was a really interesting experience. So how long did you run that practice for before joining Future Space? So it was Ferguson Design Studio. I was never really attached to the name because I never really wanted to call it after myself, but I just couldn't think of much else. So I did that for seven years. And we had some great projects in that time. So we started off with Qantas. We did a few little ad agencies. We did some retail work down in the rocks. And I did a little bit of resi work as well. So it was a real mixed bag. But everything had this design focus to it. It was all about design with purpose and design that improved people's lives in some way. And then... Talk us through what happened when you decided to join Future Space. What was the reason for that? Well, initially, the plan was that I would grow my business and then move out of being a subtenant. But what ended up happening was we're in North Sydney and we moved into, or Future Space moved into the city, and I went with them. I think I was pregnant at the time. So I did one of those things where you do everything all at the same time. So I renovated at home, we moved to the office, and I had a baby all within sort of September, October, you know, 13 years ago. And but Future Space, and my business, we collaborated on Google's head office here in Sydney. So that was 2007-ish. And we, the collaboration, we won the job actually. And just winning the job made people sit up and take notice of us. We won the job because Ferguson had all of the kind of quirky creative design experience and Future Space had some big floor plate experience. They're moving into a building that had 3,000 square metre floor plates. And that was the first thing we collaborated on. And we, our values were the same because Future Space was my husband's business, but our values were really similar. And a lot of our client relationships and project manager relationships were similar. And really what happened was people were starting to say, look, who do we talk to? Do I talk to Angela or do I talk to Stephen? Like, I know both of you. What do I do? And we would swap projects actually and, and share teams. And it was just this natural evolution. So October 09, we merged the two businesses. And I always tease Stephen. I tell him Future Spaces, you know, that's when Future Space really started to take off. So it's 10 years this October. And was that a hard decision to make? Not really, no. It, was, it wasn't a hard decision. I, I guess, as you said, it was sort of a natural evolution. But I suppose for you, for your business that you had started up, did it feel like you were kind of giving that away or was it very much this kind of merging and you were happy to, to build in future space as something that was yours as well? Yeah, look, it was very much emerging of the two practices and people and because we were all in the same space anyway. And, you know, Stephen will often mention the shareholding and obviously he's got the bigger shareholding, but to me it's kind of neither here nor there because our risk is the same anyway because all of our eggs are in that basket. But he did have another business partner at the time and that business partner ran the architecture division. And really what was happening was that Future Space and my business were getting closer and closer and architecture was starting to really evolve in a different way. So it just, it kind of made sense that architecture became something else and they separated off and started another business. And then we joined and became a, a one bigger business. So do you still work on architectural projects as well as the interiors or the focus is in interiors? Focus is in interiors, yeah. It is an architectural approach rather than a decorative approach. And you have those skills, I guess, within the practice too. Exactly. Well, Stephen's a registered architect, so yeah. 
So how many people currently work at Future Space? So we're about sort of 25 across Sydney and Melbourne at the moment. And we're an interiors only business. So we're pretty efficient too. So our biggest project was the two PWCs running in Sydney and Melbourne at the same time a couple of years ago. And at their peak, we had eight people on them. So there was 20,000 square metres of project with a fairly significant budget. And I think there's a bit of a myth that you need a lot of people to do these types of jobs, but I think eight pe- and highly detailed documentation as well. So we're quite efficient and we're quite lean the way we run as well. And what's the split between Sydney and Melbourne? It's probably about 80-20. Sydney's obviously the first office and the head office, but I think the growth area really is in Melbourne right now. So in 2004, you started Ferguson Design Studio just as one person, but you had the job that you're working on for Qantas. Talk us through that progression of going from one person to seven people. Look, it went to it went to two or three pretty quickly. And it was really just as the work was starting to come in, I was starting to need more people and more support. Initially working on Qantas, I was able to borrow Stephen from Future Space. And he was my project coordinator while I did the design and the documentation. I had a bit of support from Future Space. But as the business grew and I got more work in, I had to employ more people. Was that stressful, starting to take on that number of staff and knowing that you had to manage them yourself? Yeah, look, it was wasn't stressful. It just felt very grown up. And early 30s, I think you just go for things. I didn't really think too much about a lot of things. I thought about, you know, my intentions and what I wanted to achieve. And I'm a very much give things a shot type person. And actually, my mother-in-law said to me years ago, she said, Angela, you are, you're entrepreneurial. Like you will give things a go and try things and see how they work out. So I'm sort of a bit less risk averse than Stephen is. And did you find that change from, say, three or four staff to seven staff even though it sounds like not that many proportionally, but it's kind of effectively doubling the numbers. Did you find that a bit of a leap? Yeah, it does become more time consuming because our business is our people. So you need to invest time with people. And and what I've found is that as we've grown over the years, usually at any one time, there's probably three people in the studio who need some sort of special attention, whether it's stuff that's going on at home or career-wise, or just there's some way that they'll need a bit of extra support. And that seems to be the level. It's constantly a juggling act. So it's a bit sometimes, it feels like whack-a-mole. So you kind of pop one thing down and another one pops up. And so then when you joined Future Space and went from seven or eight people to 25 people, did you find that a bit of a shock? Over the years, I think I've gradually been drawn more and more into running the business and less and less on projects. And I think as we grew in time, the challenges became more real and more diverse and more within the business and not necessarily on projects. So I, a few years ago, put a a new structure into place. Initially, when I joined Future Space, we looked at, you know, roles and responsibilities and Steve and I pretty much just split them between the two of us. As the years have gone on, we've sort of put different structures into place. I, I think the whole people side of things, it's needed more and more attention. That whole growth and mentoring and career path for staff, it's become more at the fore of what it means to run a business these days. So your role is managing director at Future Space. What's Stephen's role? Stephen's founder and and he really runs that workplace strategy side of the business as well as sales. We were at Gaia together, which is where we met, and they used to call him the octopus. He tells me it's because his tentacles were everywhere in terms of finding leads and winning new 
work and new business. So, yeah, so that is really his passion. He does a lot of that. And then how have you defined other people's roles within the practice progressively as Future Space has grown as a business? When I became managing director, there was a bit of a process to go through to define that role. And Stephen and I just looked at where our strengths were, what our personality types were. We'd done a lot of work with different business coaches over the years, the two of us together. And it really just became obvious that my skills and talents lay in that all-rounder area where I could touch a lot of different aspects of the business. And Stephen's skills and talents really lay in that workplace strategy and talking to banking and financial services clients because he's another man in a suit and and also the sales aspect of the business. So, so becoming managing director, I think, really played to my skill set and also just my strengths around working with people because that is something I really love doing, whether that's my staff or whether that's my clients. Do you find that there's still a time for you to remain involved in the design of each of the projects? I am not so much interested anymore in what the project looks like. What I'm really interested in is how it all comes together because we predominantly do workplace design. So that front part of a project where I talk to clients about what are their visions, what are their goals, what do they want to achieve, how can the physical environment support that, that's the stuff I'm really passionate about. And so I spend a lot of my time on projects doing that piece of work. And then as it starts to progress, the design pick it up. I stay around during sketch planning and then from concept through to delivery and or DD and, and realisation and delivery, that's when the designers really pick it up and make it happen. And to be honest, we don't have a house style. All of our work looks really different. And that's because we're not actually designing for what we like. It's a bit different to residential design. I think you go to a, a resi designer because they have a particular style, whereas us, we design for a brand and a culture. And so to be honest, we're not attached to the end result and what it looks like as long as it performs the way it's meant to perform. So it's more of a strategic role now? Yeah, absolutely. Was that, again, a gradual kind of progression for you in terms of that role? I think it's as you get older, you start to realise where your strengths are and where your interests are and also that you can't do everything all the time and looking at where I add most value. And I I can't, like the wrangles over colour palettes, I just can't cope with anymore, you know. So there's a time I think we outgrow that a little bit. Focus more on the bigger picture. Exactly. Thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time to hear Angela talk more about the structure of Future Space and about the rewards and challenges of working alongside her own partner, the founding director of the company, Stephen Minette. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.